Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. These programs are just one of several free services we provide to disseminate information about training for mountain sports. If you like what you hear and want more, please check out our website, uphillathlete.com, where you'll find many articles and our extensive video library on all aspects of training for and accomplishing a variety of mountain goals. You'll also find our forum where you can ask questions of our experts and the community at large. Our email is coach at uphillathlete.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We've been very pleased and, of course, gratified that our podcasts are being received so enthusiastically. We've had requests to enable a way for listeners to have a conversation about episodes. We certainly welcome this idea and want to encourage those of you who do want to do that to do so on our forum so that the whole Uphill Athlete community can join in and benefit from this exchange. To do so, please start a new thread on the forum using the title of the podcast under the most appropriate category. Thanks for being part of this community. Welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete Podcast. I have a return guest today, um, Captain Vince Pakowski, U.S. Army Ranger. Um, some of you might remember that oh, a month or so, a couple months ago, I guess, uh, did a podcast with Vince, wherein he outlined his own personal journey to winning the, the best ranger competition. And those that need some background on that, I'm sure Vince will help us kind of get, get you up to speed on what that means. Um, and I found it really quite a, a fascinating thing to hear about how he had used the uphill athlete um, methodologies to prepare for this competition. And he's gone on to do something, he's taken that to another level this year for the, the best ranger competition just took place a few weeks ago. Um, and Vince was coaching um, a number of men who competed in that. And we'll talk about the results that he got with this. Um, and I just think that this is an interesting uh, area for us, even for our non-military athletes that we deal with because it shows the kind of the universality um, of the principles that we advocate and how they can be used for you know, essentially any endurance uh, event, whether it's mountaineering, running, or in this case, uh, a very demanding you know, multi-day um, competition that obviously involves a lot of endurance, but a bunch of other skills that have to be used. So well, welcome back, Vince. It's great to see you again. Um, I appreciate your taking time. I know it's been a busy period for you, especially leading into the competition, but even afterwards. So I appreciate your being willing to sit down with me again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to, to kind of go through the, uh, the weekend we had a, a couple weekends ago and, and recap some of the, the big lessons learned. Well, why don't you start off with, you know, Maybe just for those that I know we did a little bit of the origin story um, when we first spoke, but why don't you give us a, you know, a couple minute rundown on your, your story and then, then we'll take it from there and we can talk and also maybe fill in some of the gaps for people that don't know anything about the best ranger competition who maybe haven't listened to the previous episode. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm originally from Wisconsin, uh, born and raised there. Uh, I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee on a cross-country and track and field scholarship. Um, there I, I studied accounting and finance, but I, I knew I wanted to commission into the United States Army. So from there, I commissioned in the United States Army as a military intelligence officer um, and then spent about four years at the 75th Range Regiment. Um, where I had the opportunity to first learn about and compete in the best ranger competition. Um, the best ranger competition is a three-day, uh, pretty demanding event. Um, and it can go anywhere from 70 to 80 miles in total distance. Um, but what makes it really difficult is that it's continuous um, and it's split up into all these smaller events. Uh, the events can range in anywhere from duration to an hour to four hours long or even two or three minutes. Um, high interval uh, events that are going to test, you know, a, a ranger's ability to shoot, uh, communicate, provide medical aid, work as a team uh, with his partner, um, or, or just move over distance under load. Um, and because it's continuous, it, it 
really takes a lot of, of training, not only to master the technical and tactical side um, of the skills required to be successful at the competition, but it also requires a, a pretty heavy load of, of physical conditioning, not only for uh, running and rucking, but also for um, obstacle course style work or upper body um, and your ability to climb or your ability to carry heavy objects. Um, so where like a, a normal, you know, 80 mile and three day event may not see uh, a super high level of intensity over that duration, uh, the best range of competition makes it so that because every event is graded by itself, you really need to, to perform a, almost a sub-maximal effort in every event trying to get as many points as you can accumulate over the weekend. So that, that makes it uh, difficult and I think a, a pretty unique endurance challenge um, in and of itself. Is it a combination of, I mean, is the overall time taken into consideration plus events, these scores for these events? So is there a combination of the, uh, the speed and the skill come part of it? So once the weekend starts, no, every individual event is its own event. Um, and it is not a cumulative time event. So for instance, uh, this year, you know, the opening event was a sandbag carry for about two and a half miles into a series of, of push-ups and squats into another sandbag carry for two and a half miles. That lasted about an hour. Um, and that was its own event. From there, the weekend kind of spreads out. So especially as you get into the range sequence, there were four ranges on day one. Um, teams are just arriving to the range when they arrive to the range. Their time to the range was time. Um, however, that is its own event, the movement between ranges, and then they're scored at the ranges themselves. So everything's really its own event. And because the weekend gets so spread out, um, you know, from the first place team to the last place team, you have no idea how fast people are moving between rangers or, or how they're performing at a certain task or how fast they've completed something. So every time you arrive to that new event, you really kind of have to give it almost like a 90% effort to ensure, you know, you're not hemorrhaging too many points to other teams that are, that are doing well. Sounds complicated. Um, and, and I saw a little, there's some little um, snippets on YouTube from this year's competition that I watched. And I encourage people to, to do a search on YouTube if they're interested in seeing what this looks like you know, in action. So we, last year you won this competition, you and your partner. And from what I've gathered from what we've spoken about off, uh, off, off mic was that you were approached or you dragooned a number of your um, compatriots into training uh, under you as a coach to prepare for this year. How did you, did people come to you after your success and ask you what the secret of your success was? Yeah, so I, I think it's it's kind of happened in a few different ways, right? I, you know, I had pre-existing relationships with individuals who, who saw the success we had and, and kind of tried to, you know, pick our brain or, um, you know, glean what, what those secrets were. Um, and then, yeah, also had, you know, as people started uh, preparing for the competition, people would just reach out um, in like a cold call manner, like, hey, wh where should I focus or, or where should I, I put my effort and time into this? Um, my partner and I, you know, we took a kind of a different approach last year, um, where we kind of scrapped a lot of the, the high intensity work, uh, to trade for just long duration, um, and, and big weeks of volume, um, in order to just be durable throughout the weekend. And I think what, what people are seeing and, and what the results really two weeks ago showed is that if you're durable, you're going to do better over time in all of these tactical and technical tasks, um, as well as, you know, the, the physical capacity to compete um, over time. So, But you had a few fellas that you had kind of under your direct control this year, right? Wasn't there mm -hmm. a few folks that you put together a little training squad? Yeah, absolutely. So I directly coached um, – five teams this year. 
Um, and then uh, because I had moved units from the 75th Range Regiment to the, the 4th Infantry Division. So I, I took over the training for the 4th Infantry Division teams and, and a couple of the special operations teams um, I assisted with. And then uh, the 75th Range Regiment, where I just come from, had, had basically taken the training we had done, uh, my partner and I, last year, and then mapped that out again uh, for, for their train up this year. So really what we saw was two camps taking the, the same ideology um, and really replicating the exact same workouts. John Flynn and, and Nick O'Brien, who are the coaches for the 75th Range Regiment, um, it, it was uh, I had sent John uh, a copy of Uphill Athlete and said, you have to read this, um, you know, prior to this year's train up. And, and he said, oh, I just got done reading it and I've kind of revamped our whole schedule. And what was pretty funny was, he would do, you know, those guys in, in Georgia would do a workout and we were doing the same workout on the same day. And we didn't even know that that was occurring until, you know, the data was being uploaded to, to Strava or Garmin. And, and you could start to see, you know, this, this uh, consistent progression of, of how we were moving towards the competition. And, and then come competition weekend, um, you know, the teams placed first, second, third, um, fourth, sixth, and seventh. Um, which was a, a pretty remarkable finish. <laughs> well, you let one sneak in there. Sounds like yeah. that top seven. Um, yeah. Well, that I know from our last talk, your your you mentioned then that you kind of had this mission of changing the army's attitude about training, especially rangers. But um, we've seen this, and we can talk about this with regards to other special operations units. But um, it sounds as if you might have caught the attention of some people that have the ability to, to make these decisions about how the training should be progressing or how it, what, kind of, what kind of training should be used. Yeah. Uh, so for some context, uh, you know, the, the competition occurs over three days. Um, after each day, there's cuts made. So the day one starts with 52 teams. They cut down to 28 teams for the second day, and they cut down to 16 teams for the third day. Right now, I'm at the 4th Infantry Division, um, who last year didn't, didn't see a team make it out of day one. Um, this year, all three teams made it out of day one to day two, and, and one team finished seventh overall. Um, and And... The, the difference that's being noted there is, is just the level of preparation. One of the individuals who took seventh this year didn't make it out of day one last year. Um, and, you know, his comment, commentary the whole time was he didn't realize how unprepared he was for the competition until he went through, you know, a, a proper train up and realized if, if individuals are preparing like this, it's no wonder I didn't make it, you know, out of day one. So. I've, I've had the opportunity to sit down with, you know, the, the commanding general here for Carson and kind of go over, you know, the process we took in order to be successful. Um, and, and I think, you know, what we're looking at as a, as a whole is how do we replicate, replicate this across, you know, teams and squads and platoons um, to create a more lethal fighting force. And have, I would assume you've put a great deal of thought into that. You're a very thoughtful person. And you've got some ideas about how this could be implemented on a large scale. And, and do you see that, you see something that is really actionable on a, on a large scale? Um, because right, you are working with very highly motivated individuals who probably were already, you know, in the top few percent um, physical performance in their units. And, and they were very open and receptive to this methodology, how do you see that scaling from there? Yeah. So I, I really believe it is like everything in the army. It's, it's a bottom up fight, right? It, these, you know, the, the institutional change or the cultural change that needs to occur cannot occur from, from the top levels down, right? It, it takes, you know, the platoon leaders, platoon sergeants and squad leaders buying off on the idea that, Hey, if we train in a manner that, you know, might not be as intense as we're used to, but takes us into a longer duration over time, we're going to see, you know, a reduction in injuries. We're going to see 
you know, better physical performance, especially on day three or four of a field exercise. Um, and we're going to see a longevity in our soldiers that we haven't seen before. Um, you know, how we're really looking at scaling it. Like I, I gave the, the mission to the guys that I had trained up um, that the best ranger competition is not about, you know, what happens on the weekend or, or who wins at, at the end of the day. It's about taking those skills back that you've learned for the past three or four months to the formation and imparting them on teams and squads and, and individuals who you can actually affect. Um, you know, I, I think it, like anything, it, it's still going to take time. Um, but as long as we continue to show and, and prove results through, you know, a methodology, I think that's where you get more and more buy-in. I've had conversations here with, with, uh, you know, people who are asking how, how did you take, you know, a program that never got anybody out of day one to, you know, finishing, you know, seven. Well, you know, all that is, is, is consistency over three months. It was a pretty intense consistency, but, but we can scale that back in order to, you know, in, introduce individuals who are not at all used to or, or not maybe as motivated to, um, you know, do long days. But as you slowly introduce it to them, I think people realize that they have a propensity to perform to a much greater level than they originally thought capable of. Um, and once you open up that ceiling for them, I think it's human nature to want to chase, you know, what is my actual potential now that I know that, you know, all of this exists um, above and ahead of me um, and that I am capable of, you know, getting to that, that place. It, and it does seem, you know, I, as some folks know that I, I've spent a little bit of time working with uh, individual special operations uh, folks, you know, in most cases helping them prepare for certain selections and I've had opportunities to interact and rub shoulders with some trainers at different special operations units. And it's been interesting to me that these ideas that we've put forth in the books and, you know, just in general on our training philosophy, um, I was surprised that there was an utter complete lack of knowledge of these things in that world that the the trainers typically and, and I think many of the the soldiers are coming to their they've never be even been exposed to endurance training you know they have no clue of and then that was shocking to me, but it also meant that, oh, there's a lot of really low-hanging fruit here. It would not be that easy. I mean, these are people that have a very high work capacity because they're typically used to doing a lot of very high-intensity, um, heavy work, but they don't do it with the endurance training um, methodologies in mind. They're, you know, it's all interval-style work at a very high intensity which does make you tough as hell and allows you to do a lot of hard work, but it doesn't allow, it doesn't, as you were talking, it doesn't make you durable. It doesn't give you that ability to perform well, you know, three or four days into some type of an event. And so it seems like this is a universal uh, characteristic in, in your world. I mean, I, I'm sure you've bumped into it and initially you probably, ran into some resistance in that, in that world with people saying, well, you know, that can't work because they've never tried it. And then as you just pointed out, once someone tries it and develops this level of endurance, suddenly they go, Oh my gosh, there is a ton here that, you know, I didn't even, didn't even know this world existed. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to hear how well your this recent uh, group did. I mean, you know what, six teams in the top seven that were all using the kind of the uphill athlete training methodologies. Uh, that's, I guess that's about as good a proof of concept as you could have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think. So if, if we just take special operations and, and we can take the 75th range regiment as, as kind of a, a case study here, right? And in the 75th range regiment, you know, the, the ranger standard is the ability to run five miles at any time in under 40 minutes, right? So that's, that's one of the standards that's, that's held across the board. You, you need to be able to do that. 
Well, what we see in, in Rangers then is anytime they, you know, leave the company area to go for a run, they feel the necessity to run at eight minute pace or faster, um, regardless of what they're running, right? If they're going to run five miles or six miles, they're going to try and run eight minute pace or faster. Well, that only works if, you know, you have the capacity to run a sub 30 minute five mile, right? Then maybe that, that eight minute mile makes sense for your, your easy pace. What we need to start to try and do is, is break down the, the perception that, Hey, because that's the standard, it means that that's what I have to do all the time. That's not what that means, right? It means because that's the standard when I test, I need to be faster than that. And it's teaching individuals that, Hey, that means that, you know, a 10 minute mile, a nine minute mile, that's okay. Sometimes, you know, if, if that's what your body's feeling, you're, you're still seeing great results from that, that zone two effort and, and that low aerobic, um, intensity, but it's teaching guys to accept that that's, that's really key. And so I, I think we talked about it a little last time, but one thing we try to do is, is change the perspective on the workouts, right? If I assign a ranger, you know, a 10 mile run, Ranger is going to try and finish that 10 miles as fast as possible, you know, either just to be done or because they get competitive with, you know, someone else. Um, but because I've given them 10 miles and they know that they can affect the amount of time that they're out there doing 10 miles, they're going to try and get it done faster because that's the mentality. But if I tell Ranger, Hey, I want you to go run for an hour and a half and I do not care how far you go. What we're finding is, is that then all of a sudden they will temper back, you know, their, their pace. They, they will actually run easy because they know I'm out here for 90 minutes regardless. And I've been explicitly told that no one cares how far I go as long as I'm just keeping an, an easy effort. Um, you know, and, and reframing that goal in, in their head, I think, is, is crucial to, um, to finding success long term. And then also, you know, the, the army kind of has a, a nasty habit when we talk about, you know, ruck marching is when we're training ruck marching, guys will throw on their ruck and they'll just begin to run. Well, running with, you know, 35, 45 pounds on your back long-term isn't, you know, super beneficial for a lot of reasons. You're, you're going to run into injuries pretty quickly. You're going to run into a lot of overuse issues. Um, and because we do that, guys, you know, do it once. And then they're like, I can't train rucking. Like I'm going to get hurt. And because of that, they just, they, they don't train the skill at all where what we have to do is reframe to, you know, your engine is going to carry your ability to run with a rucksack if necessary. So we can build the engine without you having to put weight on your back. But then what we can also do is add weight to your back and just walk and train these, these muscles, you know, that, that aren't typically used. Um, and train a skill that a lot of people neglect, and that's just the ability to walk fast. Um, recently, here on, on post, we did a, a ten mile ruck march. Um, you know, and a, a bunch of guys took off you know, running from from the get go. And I told everyone, I'm I'm just going to walk. I'm going to walk, you know, at a, a comfortably fast pace, and and we'll see where we end. And I think only two guys finished the the ten miles ahead of me because they broke themselves down over time where if we can train troops to just walk and hold a steady pace for a, a long duration, well, then we have a more sustainable force that we can infiltrate in, into a combat zone that isn't quite as tired when they arrive and are able to replicate that effort day after day after day um, because it's just a more sustainable energy system to work. So you know, I, I think part of it is, is changing the, the frame in which, you know, how soldiers think about fitness and, and the journey to, to achieve uh, better results. And then part of it, too, is, is just, you know, uh, changing their perspective on what is acceptable. Um, is it acceptable to walk? Absolutely, because you can walk every single day of your life, you know, for the rest of your life with, with less um, detriment to, to future operations. So. Um, yeah, I, I think that's where, where we've kind of got to, to move towards and, and some ways to, to think about it as, as we move forward. Let's, let's talk a little bit about rucking. I was having a conversation with um, one of our other coaches who um, couldn't 
be on this call. Um, that's Jack Kunzel, and Jack has <clears throat> recently left one of the SEAL teams and came to work for us because it was a much more glamorous job than he had before. <laughs> Um, and actually, Jack is off uh, breaking, you know, fastest known times all over the place right now. He just uh, two days ago has set the fastest known time on Mount Hood, and a couple of weeks before that, it was Mount did the fastest known time on Mount Shasta. So he's got a whole new dog bone that he's grabbed a hold of now that he's left the seals. <laughs> but anyway, we've had some really interesting talks about the, the about rucking, and he like you. It, or at least I'm, I'm making an assumption. The two of us feel that that rucking, especially the way you were describing it a few minutes ago, where people are running with a pack on, is grossly overused, and it leads to a lot of injuries. And, uh, and Jack told me an interesting little like you know anecdote, and I think a lot of times these anecdotes are insightful. You know, training anecdotes, I think, are important to to uh, to seize upon and to kind of understand why this these things might happen when one athlete does such and such. And so Jack said, in order to prepare for, and Jack's a fairly, he's a pretty big guy, but he's leaned himself down to I think about 175 pounds now that he's doing all this running and schemo stuff. Um, but he got up to 215 pounds before he went to Buds. It, thinking that he needed to be you know, really big and strong. And he thought he would, he was really very ready and going to be doing, you know, be the best guy at all the running and rucking type events. And he said the best ruck performances in his buds class were put up by a couple of 160 pound Academy graduates who had run cross country at the Academy and had never really done any wrecking, rucking training. And he said that was a real eye opener for him. It's like, oh, it's this big aerobic motor that allowed them to, to handle this, to, to, to be able to move quickly, even when you put a pack on their back. And my, I surmise from what I know about other types of training in the civilian world is that there's this notion that you need to do, and it's, you, you alluded to it a few moments ago when you were talking about the need to go out and run at an eight minute or faster pace every time you put your running shoes on and went out the door. And that is this notion of specificity and how people misunderstand and overuse specificity. So they're thinking, okay, if the competition is going to involve you know, me carrying a heavy pack you know, as fast as I can, I better start training like that a lot. And we, I see this in the mountaineering world um, where people think, okay, mountaineering is essentially carrying a heavy pack uphill. I better do every workout as a heavy pack carry uphill. And when I tell them, well, there's a need for carrying a heavy pack uphill for sure, but you definitely do not want to be doing the bulk of your training that way. In fact, I work with some professional high altitude mountaineers, professional alpinists. They do 90% of their aerobic base training running with you know, nothing more than a, a, a water, uh, water bottle. And yes, we do some heavy, hard work with a big pack uphill, but it's very controlled. And it's, you know, I would say like a, less than 10% of their training looks like that. And so I, think that there's this misunderstanding about specificity. And from what little I know, which is I've only you know, been around the tactical world for a few years now and seen you know, some snippets and pieces of how people are training, I think there's, there's, a, there's a tendency in that world as well to overuse that specificity concept. And so I, Jack wanted me to ask you about this and see if you were kind of in agreement with that and how you, and how did you fit rucking? Um, and you, I think you've already explained it, but how you fit rucking into your training program. But do you see that kind of over specificity, overuse of specificity? Absolutely. So, you know, as an example, once a year units usually do the expert infantry badge or the expert soldier badge um, as, as part of uh, you know, the, the total, um, soldier concept. And part of that 
is a 12 mile march to the three hour standard. So 15 minute miles for, for 12 miles with a, a 35 pound pack on plus your helmet weapon and, and um, your fighting load carrier. Well, what, what always happens is, you know, you get two months out and then the unit starts scrambling, realizing like, oh, we haven't trained for rucking. And all of a sudden people are putting on rucksacks two or three times a week. You see guys running around with rucksacks. You see, you see some pretty crazy things happening in this two month window prior to the testing, trying to get ready. Um, and, and I think that's a great way to set up for injuries and to, to change the conversation about rucking from, Hey, this is something that, you know, soldiers should be capable and competent and and ready to do at any time to, Hey, we should avoid rucking at all costs because it's injury producing. Well, it is injury producing if, if you try and cram it all at, at one time and, and you're, you're running with your pack all the time. The way I looked at, at ruck marching for, for the train-up and, and the way we kind of, you know, put it in there is, is hey, this is going to be our zone to work. You're going to go out there and you're going to learn to walk at 11-minute miles or 12-minute miles um, just walking with your pack on. We're going to start with 35 pounds, you know, go to 45 pounds, maybe try a couple weeks at 55 pounds but we're only going to ruck two or three times a week. And it's only going to be one to add volume two to add time on the feet to condition the traps to, to handle the, the weight and the lower back to handle the weight. But the impact you're going to be seeing from it in, in terms of your body is going to be low because you're, you're just going to be walking. Um, and so I think from that lens, you know, that, then we have a sustainable plan, but I agree 100% that at the end of the day, you know, if, if there's a ruck race coming on, you can line up everybody at the start of the ruck race and just have them run five miles. And that will probably predict the order in which they'll finish that 12 mile ruck march as well. Because at the end of the day, it is about aerobic engine and the packs aren't heavy enough to, to, you know, take away that advantage. Eventually, if you talk about, you know, hey, we have to do a, a infill with a hundred pound pack. Okay, well, well, now, you know, that 150 pound frame isn't going to be able to handle, you know, a hundred pound pack as well as a 195 or 200 pound, you know, frame is, is going to handle that. But that's where we have to look at, especially, you know, in, in the military and special operations is, is where is the, the sweet spot in the middle to train as a, as a, as an athlete and a warrior at the same time, right? It's probably not down below 150 where you're going to get your best aerobic results. And it's probably not above 200 where, you know, the, the trade-off for, for just moving your own muscle around is so great that you're losing efficiency. It's probably somewhere in that, you know, 160 to 180 range, depending on, you know, a lot of factors and the ability to have enough strength and capacity to carry a heavy pack, but have the engine too to be able to move quickly over time. And if you can mesh those two things without rucking every day or, or constantly putting a pack on, you'll know that, hey, when the time comes to throw that heavy pack on, your body's going to be ready. And so I absolutely agree that, you know, we get overly specific and, and kind of tunnel vision comes on when we see like, oh, the goal is this 12 mile ruck march in two months. Well, now we have to ruck all the time. Well, if, if we just maintained a good aerobic base and threw on the pack, maybe, you know, once a week or twice a week to, to just keep the, the traps and lower back familiar with it, but do it in a manner that is just really recovery work. Um, we can still get after that, that, you know, uh, total soldier concept and the ability to, to stay fit in, in a multitude of domains. Yeah, and, and certainly injury has to be at the very top, or injury prevention has to be at the very top of the list of goals when you're training any athlete, because once they're injured, then there can be no more training, or not, there, there has to be, the training will be greatly compromised. You, know, you maybe have to go from, for all, for all these type of events you're doing, and especially in the, the kind of mountain events we train people for, they're, they're all footborne. And if you need to shift someone to cycling because of an injury, that's going to compromise the training. Mm-hmm. I mean, cycling is a great exercise, but it doesn't 
provide the kind of um, conditioning that you need if you're running around in the mountains or carrying, you know, mountaineering heavy with a heavy pack, or in your case is rucking. You can't, you can't train on a bicycle and get off and expect to do well in a footborne activity. Just, it just doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, we, I always have felt like coaches have their own version of the Hippocratic Oath. You know, first, do no harm. You know, make sure you're not screwing somebody up, injuring them, overtraining them, that sort of thing. And, and it just seems like there's such a high risk when you get people running around with a heavy pack on their back a lot. Um, and especially, you know, in your case, you're often, you're dealing with young men and women, I'm sure too, um, you know, it kind of in, in the peak of their physical years, we're often dealing with folks who are well past their physical peak and maybe haven't been, uh, you know, active, you know, at a particularly high level and for many, in some cases, maybe decades. And then they're coming to us and they need to prepare for a mountaineering event, which does involve carrying a heavy pack. It's, it's risky to you know, suddenly throw a heavy weight on that person, especially because we're talking about workouts. Most of your rucking is probably done on pretty flat or gentle terrain. And we're talking about having to carry a heavy pack uphill and back downhill. Um, and the downhill impact is, is significant. It probably it mimics that, you know, the impact of running. And I think that's something that a lot of folks don't understand is that, that the impact of running even with no weight on your back is about, depending on how fast you're running, of course, is somewhere in the range of two to three times your body weight on every foot strike. And mm -hmm. when you multiply that by thousands of foot strikes, it's no wonder people get overuse injuries. I mean, it's no wonder running has a reputation for, for injuring people. Um, and it takes a long time to build the conditioning to prepare somebody for that kind of loading. Um, and, and people in their, 40s and 50s and 60s who we often run into there the elasticity of those connective tissues is nothing like it is with your 20 somethings that you're typically working with so people have to be careful about you know I, I, obviously I'm, I'm making quite a case for not hurting yourself because having you know having hurt myself many times through training I think almost every athlete will have injured themselves at least a few times in their career um, you realize how how detrimental that is to your both physical and mental preparation for something. You, you can get pretty depressed if all of a sudden you can't do the thing you are training for. And I think that's where too, you know, we can, we can look at be, because running is, is such a, a high impact activity, right? If we change the mode of running a little bit though, we can lower that, that level of impact that we see, right? And that's where, you know, I had my guys training a lot of their long runs and a lot of even their easy runs in the mountains because, you know, they're right across the street here from Fort Carson. Well, all that does is, is reduce the level of impact as they're, they're running uphill. And then as long as they're given, you know, instructions that we're not bombing down any hills today and we're not going to, you know, eccentrically load like crazy. Um, they did a pretty good job of understanding that like, hey, yeah, that was a, a 10, 11 minute mile. But I also just chewed off 200, 300 feet of elevation gain that mile. So it's okay. Um, I'm, I'm still working, you know, plenty hard. I think something, you know, that, that John Flynn, Nick O'Brien from the 75th Range Regiment have done really well is introduced, you know, they're down in Georgia, so they don't have the mountains. But especially for guys that are coming off combat-related injuries or – even just overuse or overwork injuries is introducing them to, you know, a 30% incline three miles an hour on the treadmill. And you are getting, you are gaining so much return on investment for so little impact um, that, that you can do things like that pretty continuously um, and not really run into the injury risk that you're going to see, you know, try, trying to chase heavy mileage um, with high intensity on the road or, or on a flat surface. Um, because of all that loading over and over. And I think that one of the things you and I should touch on before we go, before we leave each other's company, is this notion of just tr training the basics. 
you know, we there's so much hype around, um, you know, in a, due to social media um, and and other platforms like YouTube and whatnot that you can go on there and see people doing absolutely in, in incredible stuff. Um, it's so it's mind-boggling what people are capable of doing, and that and I think that this exposure to people, whether it's in the climbing world, the running world, the skiing world, or I'm sure in the tactical world, these incredible feats of strength and speed and power and endurance that people get sucked into thinking, oh, that's what I need to do to be good. Um, they see somebody going to the track and running, you know. 10 400 meter repeats, you know, um, with 10 seconds rest and they're under, you know, uh, 70 seconds and they think, oh, well, that's, that's what made this person fast. So I better go do that same workout. And they, what they don't see is that uh, the years and years and potentially decades of training that went into getting that athlete to the point where they could do 10 400s, you know, in 70 seconds with a, you know, short, with a short recovery. And that athlete got there because they did all this, all the very unglamorous basic stuff, the stuff you've been talking about, the zone two rucking and zone two running. And we certainly bump into that a lot in our world that people come to us knowing that we can produce, you know, good results with, with um, a variety of different types of athletes in these types of events. And then when we introduce them to these notions of this very basic stuff is, you know, there's what you need to do and it ain't very sexy. Um, there's some pushback and resistance and they think, well, wait a minute. I thought I, you know, I needed to be lying on the floor in a pool of blood and sweat at the end of every workout, or I haven't really trained. And that's a hard concept to get across to people. Um, you know, just how, especially for these endurance events, how much unglamorous, very monotonous <laughs> uh, type work that has to be done. It, and is that an area that you... I, mean, I know you you have you understand that your the success of the, these athletes you, you trained and your, yourself of course comes from this these covering your bases with these this kind of basic training do you is that an area you feel you get a lot of pushback to from folks initially absolutely um you know i i think like you're saying social media although a tool has done a has done a terrible job of, of, you know, scripting reality for us. And, and when you see, like you're saying, those huge track sessions that are, that are glamorous and fast, that's, that's a professional athlete putting the last 2% or the last 1% together that they need in order to, to, you know, really win in the last 400 meters or be competitive on the world stage. But that last 2% or that last percent means nothing if you don't have, you know, all the, all the work behind it. Um, and so, you know, and I think I, we touched on this last time. What I tried to, to do with the guys is, first off, manage expectations up front. Tell them this is going to get boring. I know you think, like, you just signed up for three, four months of, of training, and it's going to be all sunshine and rainbows and fun. Um, if it is, you're not doing it right because your body hasn't reached the level of cumulative fatigue that we want it to reach. Right. So it's, it's going to get boring. It's going to get monotonous. It's going to get, you know, it's going to feel like groundhog day from time to time. But if it does, then we know we're doing it right because not only then are we training the body, but we're also training the mind to, to just endure the, the repetitiveness that, that endurance events requires. Um, but then I, I also tried to create repeatable workouts that, that the guys could hit. So we, we repeated a series of workouts in, you know, every three weeks, the guys would hit, uh, you know, one quality session a week. And every three weeks we would go back through the same batch of workouts so that they could see and visualize what just this zone two work was doing to their capacity to move over time. And, and those events were either a, a one hour run into a two hour ruck, a five mile run into a five mile ruck into a five mile run or 
just three to four hours out in the mountains, um, you know, at, at the same series of trails just for max distance. Um, and in those three workouts, you know, instead of having them focus on, on just the time, we had them focus on, you know, today we're just going to focus on feeding. How often do you feed? You know, what, what are your source of calories that, are, that you're getting? What's your sodium intake like? What's your glucose intake like? And how did that affect the way you felt out there? Now, because they're thinking of something that has nothing to do with the workout, their mind's in a different place and the miles are clicking off faster because they're not worried about the fatigue that they're feeling, right? Mm -hmm. After the first 555 workout, we saw, you know, the guys went out, ran, then they rucked, and then everyone died on, on the final run. So then the second time around, we, we made the rule, hey, this time you have to run your, set, your first five mile as fast as you could close your last five mile last time. And what we saw was a dramatic increase in capability just from, just from having them change the scope in which they attacked the workout. Um, and we were seeing, you know, from the, the start of the train-up to the end of the train-up, 17 20% um, improvements in, in some of our athletes, especially some of our larger athletes um, in, in these workouts. You know, with our top guys still seeing 8 or 9% improvement in, in just three months in a, you know, in a uh, two-hour-long workout. Um, which is massive, but what it also shows is the credence to it doesn't take, you know, those, those track sessions that are tuning up your last 1%, 2% that induce or, or increase the risk of injury. All it takes is the consistency over time to build your engine. And then when the time comes and we sharpen the knives at, at, at the end of the, the training block, all of that is going to come together and, and this level of strength and durability that you've built is now going to be sustainable through, through an event. And then you'll actually be able to tap that last 1%, 2% when you need it. Cause you're durable enough to get to that point in, in your event. Very well said. When you were ready to get out of that army business, you know, I could probably hire you as a coach. I think <laughs> that's very well put It's really Hit and hits that nail on the head exactly um, that I encounter. I've encountered it, you know, in my whole career as a coach, where people get really caught up in that notion of that one or two percent gain that they might get from whether it's I'm going to go to ketogenic diet or I'm going to you know, <laughs> take this nutritional supplement or I'm going to do this secret special workout. And as you said, that when you're at the very peak of your when you've exhausted all the other methods of gaining fitness then yeah it's worth trying some of these things that are sort of around the edges um, that might give you you know even a half a percent here or there it can make a huge difference at a world-class level but if if you if you can concentrate on these basics you just said you saw you know in the high double digit you know, they're, you know, high, you know, high teens percentage improvements in people's performance in just a few weeks of doing the basic work. And I've seen it similarly worked with, you know, Olympians um, who came to me again, thinking that they needed more intensity in their training. And I would say, no, let's, you know, let's back off from that intensity and let me show you something. And even these folks at an extremely high level, you know, probably very close to their genetic potential um, in terms of their athletic performance, by taking a different approach and going back to the basics and making sure that the aerobic engine was as big as we could get it, they would see literally digit, you know, changes in their overall performance in the double digits up into the low to mid teens sometimes. And they couldn't believe it because they thought the only way to get those kinds of improvements in performance was by training at their limit, you know, kind of at what, what I call the endurance limit. You know, the, if, so that if you're, if you're, and this is sort of what you alluded to in the very beginning, that that's how your athletes typically would train before you started working with them is if they went out the door for a 30 minute run, they would run as hard as they could for 30 minutes. If they go for a two hour run, they run as hard as they can for two hours. So they're right. They've got the needle pressed right up against that, that stop, that limit. And the, the limit changes, of course, depending on the duration of, of that run. 
but they don't understand that they can actually get faster by going slower. Mm-hmm. And that is such a, it's so counterintuitive. And I, I, I've been struggling and I, I love hearing, I love talking to somebody that thinks the same way because I, I'm, it, it is so counterintuitive to think that you can get faster by going slower. And I think some of that comes from the notion that let's say you're in the strength and conditioning world, you don't get stronger by going into the gym and lifting lighter weights. You always mm-hmm. are training up near and close to your strength limit if you want to get stronger. But training strength and training endurance are two completely different animals. And then you just, mm-hmm. that's the tricky part for me has been trying to convey to, to folks, nope, you got to run slower if you want to run faster. Um, so it's, I'm pleased that you, you've actually stated it much more eloquently than I could. So thank you. I, not a, I'm not sure about that, but um, you know, what, one thing I, I also try to do with, with the guys is, is let them know that, you know, like an Elliot Kipchoge a couple of years ago published some of his training logs and, and you go through it and, and you start to look and you're like, wait, he, he did a two and he did a two hour recovery run. Right. But his first few miles were nine thirty, nine flat as he's working in, you know, to, to pace. Well, if the best in the world at, at what, you know, we're striving to do endurance wise has the patience to run nine thirty nine flat and trust that it's going to improve, you know, his capacity over time, then, you know, why should we do any different? Then we should be celebrating, you know, the nine minute miles, the nine thirty miles, the 10 minute miles as as a greater return on investment over time and something that can increase our longevity as athletes um, rather than looking at it as like, oh, you're not trying hard today. Well, I don't need to try hard necessarily today to see the return on investment that I want, you know, in, in the weeks and months to come. So using those like those, the athletes that, that are really, you know, living out the, the, the principles of, of 80, 20 or, or trusting the zone to work, um, I think is really helpful to just gain some perspective on, you know, it's, it's not just you know, smoke and mirrors and, you know, the yeah. sensei sitting in the corner of the room telling you like <laughs> the, the, the best athletes in the world are, are following the protocol um, and they're seeing huge results from it. And this was somebody, you know, in his particular case, this is somebody that can run 26 miles at a four and a half minute mile pace. Mm-hmm. So for him, you know, that's a nine minute mile is, you know, one half as fast as his <laughs> maximum sustainable pace. So for most of us, when, if we were to, you know, in your guys, that would mean they would be running 16 minute mile. You know, these are guys, your guys are going to run an eight minute mile pace for several miles. Well, their recovery pace would, if they, you know, if they took that, did the same ratio, they'd be running at a 16 minute mile, 15, 16 minute, which is going to seem so crazy, stupidly slow. Um, But from a physiological standpoint, it's going to probably be doing the same thing it does for Iliad Kipchoge. You know, it's, uh, so I think that there's, that's a great analogy. I I do the same thing with both. I've used him and other athletes where I can, where I have access to their training logs. And I say here, this is what what makes you think you're special that you could be doing something completely different than what the best endurance athletes in the world do Mm -hmm. and a lot of i think it it can be helpful to for people to know some of the history of of endurance training and how you know the sport of the, the science of training for endurance has gone through so many you know iterations and flip flops and um pretty much everything has been tried from, you know, the, you know, a lot of high intensity interval style work. Um, and eventually the science and the, and the empirical results have sort of settled on this approach that we've been discussing and that we write about in the book. Um, that's what's, you know, over, over the last hundred years, it's finally come around to, okay, this is what seems to work best. And um, all these things that we've tried, and I, I believe that you know, there's no better, you could take all the you know, um, research and all the studies that get done in laboratories, and I think they don't hold a candle to the biggest laboratory out there, which is you know, the competitive field. Because when you've got you know, millions of athletes training under you know, tens of thousands of coaches around the world, trying all different kinds of training protocols, 
And then they go to the starting line and the stopwatch tells you what works and what doesn't work. That's a whole lot better than a, a study that was a six week study done on some you know, inactive college students that showed that, oh, if they do these high intensity intervals, they're, they, they got an improvement in their max VO2. I don't weight that kind of study heavily at all. Um, mm -hmm. It can be interesting, but I'd much rather look at, okay, well, who's, who's the coach out there that's producing the best runners in the world and what does he yeah. do for training or she, and how are they training their athletes? And then you go, huh, there's probably something to be learned here. And that's sort <laughs> yep. of where I, the, the knowledge base that I've, where I've come from is sort of this trial and error empirical, you know, well, let's try this and see if this, what, what this does and how this works. And, and I think that what's cool about what you've done is you took, you know, you kind of probably took a bit of a, well, you came from an endurance background. So you, you knew you weren't going out on too big of a limb when you personally trained you and your partner in your first competition that you won. You, you knew some of the underlying principles. You knew, okay, I think this is going to work. But now you've taken that from, you know, one data point to, you know, six data points. When you, and you've used, and you've trained people who didn't have your, endurance training background as, as, a, as a young man. So I think that speaks volumes to the effectiveness of that training. You're to be congratulated on great results. I, I appreciate that. The, uh, yeah, the, the guys, they, they trusted the process. They, they put in a lot of work and, and they handled themselves like professionals over the weekend. And, and it was really cool to see the, fr the fruits of their labor. And um, it was the first time I saw that from like the, the coaching perspective and it was almost more fun from the coaching perspective because I didn't have to be in the hurt locker to, <laughs> to get to enjoy the, uh, the elation of, of having a great weekend. So, yeah, it, it is. I think there's a lot of, yeah, it's gratifying to be able to put some of these concepts to use and, and to see that, you know, to help other people, you know, you, you know, as an, as a, you know, an athlete, a lifelong athlete, and some of that spent in the professional sense, it's a pretty selfish pastime, pretty selfish occupation. Mm -hmm. But now you have a chance of, you know, giving back to those people and showing them how this works. And, and then I'm sure it was very satisfying as they came across the finish line to see the res results rolling in. Um, you know, there's no better feeling for a coach than to go, okay, that did work. And, and I've made these people better for it. They're, they're yeah. better off than they were before. So. That's absolutely. So where do you go from here, Vince? What's, what's, what's next on the agenda for you? You're going to have a, a big, you know, instead of you know, a few teams, are you going to be training a whole bunch of teams for the next year or what's happening? <laughs> well, we will, uh, we'll see when the time comes. The, the army's an interesting place in that now that the competition over, no one will probably talk about, you know, how to prepare or how to better, you know, do it until we get to, you know, six months out, seven months out we're always in a training cycle for something so mm -hmm. um but yeah I, I i think definitely next year you know i'll i'll be interested in continuing to coach and and continuing to to you know mentor some of of the younger guys that that want to come up and, and try and compete in the competition but more for than just the competition but but really to to try and impart on you know as as many people as we can the the importance of, of this style of training in, in our profession and, and the results that it can yield, not only from the physical side, but how that translates to your technical and tactical competence under duress and, and in a fatigued state. So, um, you know, whatever opportunities are, are thrown my way to, to help out, definitely going to, definitely going to take them. And um, yeah, just, just enjoying the time as, as it comes. Well, Congratulations again. I know that's a, it's a huge accomplishment that you pulled off and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty psyched for you. And I think that you know, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on today to talk about that is to, you know, the parallels between this particular type of event, the, the, the physical demands of the, something like the best ranger competition are not too dissimilar than the physical demands of many of these mountain events that we, that we train for, especially alpinism, where there's a very high technical component uh, combined with a big, a big endurance uh, 
component that's needed. And I think that people can understand the, the universality of this, these principles and how they can be applied is, is really useful for folks so they don't, they can have a little better grasp of kind of the under, the intellectual underpinnings of this stuff that we talk about all the time. So thanks for helping me drive that point home. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's, it's good seeing you again, Vince. Um, and maybe we'll get a chance to do this again sometime. I'd like it. Absolutely. That, that would be awesome. Yeah. That'd be really so, cool. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.